Hello, and a very warm welcome to the second episode of the BV podcast for September 2023, bringing you a slice of rural life from the lovely county of Dorset. I'm Jenny Devitt. And it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. And in this episode, we'll hear from wildlife writer and regular contributor to the BV, Jane Adams, about how valuable those plants gardeners usually dismiss as weeds really are. The story of the fish and chip van provided by the Pilgrim Friar and the vital role it plays in some local communities. And we'll hear the remarkable story of the result of a desperate tweet by artist Anna Hamilton. The fascinating tale of how some documents missing from the Alan Turing archive at Sherborne School mysteriously reappeared after decades in the USA. And Julie Hatcher of the Dorset Wildlife Trust has been enthralled by swimming with blue sharks off the Plymouth coast. And I talked to Alex Stevens of the NFU about the real challenges being faced by dairy farmers. In this month's BV, regular contributor Jane Adams comes out in support of wild plants, the plants that armies of gardeners categorise as weeds. She's in favour of letting many grow alongside the plants we take great pains to cultivate, and for which we've parted with money at our local garden centres. We may not find the wild plants, or weeds, as good to look at, but the insects vastly prefer them. And since insect numbers are plummeting, Perhaps we should be thinking like Jane and encouraging those weeds. I'm on a real hobby horse about weeds. I hate the term weed. I mean, what is a weed? I'm sure weeds is not a word that we've been using for hundreds and hundreds of years because, you know, people appreciated plants, didn't they? And and they actually, you know, some some of the plants that we now call weeds, like dandelions, they used to encourage in their gardens, you know, sort of probably 200 years ago. So, no, I, I'm, I think we should ban the word weed, if personally. It, I think they're far too important. It's a, it's a very derogatory word, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you don't think of weed as being a good good term, do you? I mean, there's some scientists and people who are, are trying to think of sort of more positive spins to put on the word weed by saying positive weeds or... Um, good weeds but I, I just think we should just get rid of it and just call them wildflowers or wild plants I, th- I um, think because you're, basically you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right I think yes yes um, I, 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 I don't know if you got to the Chelsea flower show this year I, I went for the first time and, and it had it was very interesting it had an abundance of natural gardens in which there were plenty of flowering plants that we usually call weeds um so i'm mm. i'm kind of i i guess from what you've just been saying this is a trend that you would welcome natural gardens well yes although i mean i i wrote my article this this month about alan titchmarsh saying that he didn't like the trend towards having weeds and i know that some of that was because of the RHS sort of encouraging um, weeds and there being more weeds in the Chelsea gardens this year and and maybe some of those gardens have gone too far because they were practically all what we would class as wildflowers. I'm actually on the side of having both. To be honest I'm on the side of people want having what they like as long as what they have in their gardens is beneficial to our wildlife and that they think about that when they're sort of buying plants or what plants sort of turn up in their gardens. 
and also having a think about what plants they're digging out. Maybe they should be leaving them for a bit longer, let them flower and then maybe dig them out if, if they're classing them as a, an unwanted plant. I'm not on the fence, but I, I think that there's, there's room for both. Uh, tell me, Jane, I'm sort of assuming that all, um, all our native wild plants uh, whether you wish to call them weeds or not, are all <laughs> uh, are all beneficial in some way. I mean, obviously, mostly to insects. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about every single one of them, but I would think that a, a big proportion of them are because they have grown and developed over the m- <laughs> millions of years, along with the insects and the the other sort of animals that rely on them. So there is this sort of this whole reliance between our, the creatures that we have in the country and our plants. I mean, and the plants are just as important as the animals. You know, they, they, you can't you sh- we can't be thinking about one without the other, which is is why, although I am not an expert on plants, I do know what plants sort of certain insects like and that's how I actually find those insects especially sort of this time of the year say with ivy I know if I go and stand in front of some ivy that's flowering I know what creatures I will see on it because there are certain insects that just go for ivy flowers they're reliant on each other aren't they uh, yeah absolutely and and of course the ivy is uh, it flowers quite late at a time um, towards the end of the summer and the the autumn, when there aren't many other uh, nectar-bearing flowers for for the bees, are there? No, I mean it's that in that respect it is absolutely fantastic. If you walk through any town, actually, that one of the places that I saw a big stand of ivy was walking through Wimborne a few years ago, and it was behind where the mill is, where one of the rivers comes through, and some ivy had climbed up the side of one of the buildings and was flowering and it was absolutely humming with bees and and different there was butterflies on it and all sorts of things so yeah they're um incredibly important i i guess the slightly challenging thing about about ivy and in particular jane is the fact that you know you do have to control it because otherwise it will happily invade your entire garden won't it it will, yes, and it is doing. It is trying to do that in my garden, <laughs> so I do. I do have a, a love hate relationship with it. So I do understand why people don't like all plants in their gardens, and and I am the first to say that I will dig things up if they're um, not where I want it, but I will not dig it all up. So the ivy that shoots up the side of the wall of my house. Um, gets taken down if I notice it because it seems to do it so quickly but where it's climbed up an apple tree at the bottom of the garden I'm quite happy it's an old apple tree that's died I'm quite happy for it to to be there so I think it's sort of you know give and take isn't it certain insects now um, like the ivy bee which as its name suggests is actually reliant on on ivy flowers is actually a, a quite a, a relative newcomer to the country. It was only actually found and was found in Dorset um, in 2001 and was only found in Europe in 
the 1990s, I think. Uh, yeah, 93. And that was a, a the new species to science, but it was just because it hadn't been noticed by people. But the first time it was noticed in the UK was 2001 in Worth Matravers. And since then it has spread right up the country. But that's a, a wonderful wild bee that's got here of its own accord. It's, it's flown over and relies on, on ivy flowers and is a mining bee. So it actually makes its nest in the ground. Now I'm going to put you on the spot here, Jane. What are mm. your feelings about bindweed? And, and... Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> well, without without looking it up, actually, bindweed. When I was a child, I remember I, I grew up in in North London, and it used bindweed used to climb up all the fences on the way to school on the North Circular Road. And I loved those flowers. I always, I used to walk along looking inside all the flowers to see what insects were in them. So I'm sure it has got, you know, that some certain insects that actually probably rely on bindweed. But again, you know, if it's in your garden and it's in the wrong place and it's climbing up your tomato plants, then then dig it out. Um, <laughs> if, but you maybe it, if you can. If you well that's the trouble isn't it it can but i think that is that's the thing isn't it i mean in my garden it is a constant battle with ivy and i'm never going to win that battle and maybe we'll you know you'll never win the battle with bindweed but we just have to sort of just keep living side by side don't we so i think that's where over the years we've become very intolerant to certain things haven't we we think that we're in control of everything and i think we need to sort of um, take a little step back and, and actually think about why why they're, they're there in the first place. You mentioned, Jane, you mentioned a little earlier dandelions. And, and there was a time, I understand, when people would actually and actively pull up grass on their lawns to leave more room for dandelions because of their health benefits. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there was a time when, you know, they you wouldn't have had a lawn. Your garden was was your way of being able to have food so when that was really important to people that um, they were growing their own food for the to keep for the winter there was always an area apparently that they would keep for dandelions um, and it would be used for medicinal purposes because if you eat dandelion it will sort of um, help with upset stomachs but also will make you wee if you need to it's a diuretic but also they would put the leaves into salads and they would use the roots to sort of make a crude type of coffee and they'd make the flowers into wine. So it was, you know, it was a really useful plant and they would they would never have thought of not having it. And, and of course, it's very beneficial for the insects, isn't it? <laughs> it does spread very very quickly but um yeah. personally i i keep them in my garden but uh yeah I, 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 I do pick the the seed heads off though i the first few years when i'm when i made the active decision that i was sort of going to get rid of my lawn but i was going to let it do it naturally i i had been fighting against the dandelions for years anyway and i was going around and i was just digging them up out of the lawn every single year and every year they were coming back again so i thought okay 
I'll let them flower. And they flowered and the garden was suddenly full of insects, which it hadn't been for a few years. And I thought, OK, what am I going to do the next year? So I let it do the same thing and I let it do that for two or three years. And then other plants took over. So it was really interesting how other plants actually took the place of the dandelions. I was still digging a few up if there were some that were particularly big and sort of, um, you know, really strong ones. But now, actually, my lawn is got very few dandelions in it. There's a, it's a much better sort of mix of dandelions and, and other wildflowers. So if you can leave them, if you've got a patch or an area of the garden that you think, OK, I'll, I'll let the dandelions go there and see what happens if you leave them for a few years and sort of keep them just in that area. You might find that other things start coming in and actually start taking over anyway. How very interesting. Mm. I wouldn't have thought that. You would have thought that as it's really quite a dominant um, uh, wild plant, you would think that it would carry on being dominant. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was expecting. I was I was sort of thinking, oh, I'm just going to get totally overrun by them. But at the same time, I had planted up another piece of another area as a sort of like a little mini meadow. And I'd put in things like um, orange hawkbit and devil's bit scavius they, and, and rattle and things like that. And it was the devil's bit scavius amazingly well actually the orange hawk bit went mad the first few years and sort of started taking over a lot of the area then that died back and the devil's bit scavius took over so at the moment if you walk out into my garden what was the lawn is now completely covered with devil's bit scavius it's it's amazing and and uh, covered in insects where it's in flower yeah well it's in flower at the moment and it's i counted well, I lost count, really, of the number of bees that were on it. And it was it was over 100 bumblebees were on these on the Devil's Bit Scavius at the moment. I, I reckon there was probably more like 150, 200. So uh, so in conclusion, then, Jane, <laughs> it, we, we need to stop calling them weeds. We need to think of the beneficial uh, value of these particular wild plants to to encourage the wildlife and and uh, to make our gardens more interesting maybe yeah i think i mean i've got them alongside you know traditional flower beds um i've got both and i and i think that's the nice thing that you can do with with wildflowers is that you can appreciate a lot of our cultivated flowers have only come from the wild varieties anyway so, you know, they're just a bigger, stronger type of them that maybe have got bigger flowers. So, you know, you can you can have both. And it's it's amazing some of the wildflowers that do appear in your garden, how delicate and a lot of the cultivated plants that you're buying in the garden centres are just a stronger um, cultivated variety of a lot of the wildflowers that we've got. So... I think that we can appreciate both. And if you, in the same way that you would appreciate the plants that you're buying from the garden centre for their beauty and, you know, for what they can do to your garden, then think of the wildflowers as, as being the same and have them side by side and get to know the wildflowers a bit more and get to know what wildlife actually likes them. Because if they like the wild variety, 
then whatever the cultivated one that was developed from the wild one, they'll, they're probably like those as well. So, you know, there's a, a win-win. Wildlife writer Jane Adams on the value of weeds and letting them grow in our gardens. The Pilgrim Friar, driving community connections. How Paul Futcher's fish and chip van has become a weekly staple in local villages. Rachel Rowe reports. Around 5.30pm on a certain night, the unmistakable aroma of fish and chips fills the air in villages north of Blandford Forum, enticing people out for their weekly treat. The man responsible is Paul Futcher, owner of the Pilgrim Friar fish and chip van. It all started about 15 years ago, said Paul. I was working for Scottish and Southern Electric, driving trucks, and never a thought for working in the fish and chip industry. The previous owner of the fish and chip van found God and decided to train to be a vicar. I got home from work one day and my now ex-wife said, do you want to buy a fish and chip van? It went from there. Needless to say, I ended up buying the van. We've always worked north of Blandford Forum and the Stour Valley. There were four original stops, Child Oakford, Shillingston, Iwinminster and Starapane. We've recently added Oakford Fitzpain. With a shop, you're stuck in one place. The beauty of a van is that it fits with our ethos of being able to provide something to communities that are not big enough to have a fish and chip shop of their own. There has been a fish and chip van outside the Baker's Arms in Child Oakford every Thursday since 1998. The whole village knows that Thursdays is fish and chips night. We visit each village and it fills a lovely gap in the market. Some older people don't have transport to get to the fish and chip shop. You can't help but hear that the staff on the Pilgrim Friar call some older residents by name. We know a lot of the regular customers, especially the elderly. We know their orders and what time they're coming to collect them. When people place an order, they have around 20 minutes to wait. It's a nice opportunity to catch up with others who are waiting, usually from their own community. A lot of the elderly don't see many other people. We chat to them and I know it means a lot that they have this in the village. We become part of the community. So what's the most popular choice? Well, cotton chips is what we focus on, and without a shadow of a doubt, it's what people order most of. It's very traditional. There's a tendency for people down south to go for cod, while haddock is more popular up north. You can spot a northerner who's moved south. They still prefer haddock, says Paul. We use local suppliers where we can. There are actually only two main fish and chip suppliers in this country. All the local shops use the same supplier. We use Friars Pride as it has a depot in Pool. The industry is really mechanised with fish caught in the Arctic on huge trawler boats. We used to get fish from the North Sea, but it's moved because of the fishing quotas. Once the fish is caught, it's blast frozen really fast and we get the fish in packs which we portion. Because the fish has been frozen so quickly, the quality is really good. It's actually better than fresh, even though it's been stored in a trawler for three days. We get our potatoes from Alan Frout at the Verwood. The idyllic roaming chip van life isn't without its struggles, however. Paul says it's a challenge to get to each site and provide consistent products day in, day out. With a van, things do go wrong. I always have a toolbox with me. Once we turned up in Child Oakford in six inches of snow, but we felt a responsibility to be there for our customers. Another issue is working on propane. It's not like a physical shop with mains, gas and electric. It's more challenging to produce consistency. And then there are the problems with no phone signal for taking payments, of course. But I'm proud of the connection with the local people. I never thought I would run a fish and chip van. But to be able to make a difference in people's lives is very rewarding. 
we've become a real part of the community. And the Pilgrim Friar is available 5 to 7.30, Mondays in Starpain, Tuesdays Shillingston, Wednesdays Oakford Fitzbain, Thursdays Child Oakford, and Fridays Ironminster. And a fascinating article on the power of social media. From Desperation to Media Sensation, How One Tweet Saved Anna. Anna Hamilton's quiet social media plea turned into an overnight sensation, shifting her from financial despair to overwhelming success. In her tweet, Anna wrote, I hate doing this, but I am desperate for sales, as currently a few hundred pounds short of being able to cover my bills this month. Please, if you've ever thought about buying from me, now would be a great time. Even if all you can do is retweet this, I'd be so grateful. I haven't slept properly for days, I feel ill with stress, and honestly don't know what to do other than ask for help. Anything you can do would be so very much appreciated. Many people have been hit hard by the sheer cost of living over the last year. For Dorset artist Anna Hamilton, scraping by from month to month, the 10th of August was rock bottom. She knew that this month, scraping by simply wasn't going to happen. She was out of options and desperation led her to make that single tweet. Anna could never have predicted what would happen next. I hoped it might prompt three, perhaps four sales, she says. Honestly, I thought it was a vain hope, but I was desperate and might just sell something to get me through the month. Anna woke the next day to find her polite, hopeful little tweet had gone viral. She had more than 3,000 orders, her online shop had sold out, the website buckling under the strain, and every inbox was overflowing with messages. I was stunned, she said, overwhelmed. I have no idea why it happened. Backed up by art, which is both beautiful and accessible, it seems all Anna really needed was to be seen, and that single, sad, lonely late-night message had a magical effect on the often cynical Twittersphere. The comments and retweets flooded in. Compliments on her art abounded, and many also shared it on, a simple, generous act which cost them nothing. In so doing, a bigger audience than Anna could ever have dreamt of saw her work. At time of writing, the tweet has been seen by 3.2 million people. It's been reposted more than 15,000 times and bookmarked by almost 700 people, presumably those waiting for Anna's shop to restock. Anna is entirely self-taught and her career as a professional artist was almost accidental. I've been drawing, she says, ever since I could hold a pencil. But I never really considered making it my job. The only artists who earn money are the dead ones, right? So I spent 12 years as a data analyst, about as far as you can get from creativity. But I never stopped drawing as a hobby. A friend asked if I could draw their dog. Then another requested me to do their cat. Eventually, about eight years ago, someone pointed out I should really stop doing them as favours and charge for my pet portraits. In 2018, she says, I was able to give up the day job and become a full-time professional artist through both my pet portraits and wildlife art. Anna only works in pencil, mainly because I don't like having to clean anything after I've been working. Sadly, art is a luxury item, and it's an obvious thing to cut back on when times get tough. 
The downward spiral in the economy has caused ever-deepening issues financially, and I had to take on two part-time jobs to make ends meet. It's been so incredibly stressful, and I was at a very low point. It's tough to ask for help. Unexpectedly making 3,000 sales in 24 hours brings its own level of stress to life, however. I'm now kept awake at night, she says, having a bit of a panic attack about all the emails I'm getting about orders that haven't arrived. My tiny flat looks like a warehouse. It seemed like such a good idea to individually sign and handwrite the title on my limited edition prints. It was a nice touch when I was doing a couple of months. But now I have to get 300 done once I've mounted them by hand and also put together 7,000 greeting cards. I had to order complete new stock but that arriving was a double-edged sword. I then had to hole-punch 1,800 bookmarks and add the tassels myself, though I did buy some posher tassels to celebrate. Even if I were to send out 100 orders a day, which in itself is impossible, it would take me a full month to get through every order that's come in. The size of the task in front of me is very scary, and now I've had a few people complain because they haven't received orders yet. It's upsetting, I'm trying, but simply can't keep up. I'm surviving on very little sleep at the moment. But most people have been really understanding and are just happy for me. And of course, I'm so grateful for the orders. It's just been a wild, exhausting and unbelievable few weeks. This has been the hardest but best thing that's ever happened to me and I feel incredibly lucky. I'm sure at some point I'll look back and laugh. The mysterious journey of Alan Turing's documents from Sherborne to America and back by Rachel Rowe. He does not seem to have any aptitude for languages. Alan Turing's German teacher clearly had no idea that his struggling pupil would have such a significant impact on the world when he wrote his school report in 1931. His English teacher's report wasn't much better criticising his handwriting and becoming frustrated at his lack of enthusiasm for discussions on the New Testament. Alan may not have grasped German grammar and vocabulary, but his genius in the language of computing and codes quite literally transformed the world, and continues to do so with artificial intelligence. Alan Turing is one of Sherborne School's most famous alumni, attending the school from 1926 to 1931. However, until now, few people were aware that many of Turing's personal documents, including school reports, his OBE and his PhD certificate, disappeared to the United States in a bizarre incident during the 1980s. On Tuesday, 22nd of August this year, a repatriation ceremony was held at Sherborne School when Special Agent Greg Wirtz formally handed over the material which had been taken from the school's Turing archive. The fascinating collection of documents can be seen on the school's website and provides a rich insight into the young Turing. But how did they get to America in the first place, and what was the role of the FBI? In 1965, the Turing family donated a number of Allen's personal items to Sherborne School, where they were kept in the archives. Thousands of miles away in Colorado in the 1970s, Julia Swingheimer became fascinated by Stanley Kubrick's film 2001 Space Odyssey, and in particular with HAL 9000. When she looked into the development of computers, she discovered Turing and subsequently developed an obsession with him. This led to her taking a trip in 1984 to Sherborne School, by which time she had legally changed her surname to Turing. 
She managed to convince staff at the school that she was a close relation and was allowed to borrow some items, and she also took others without anyone knowing. At this time, the work of Alan Turing was not widely recognised, not least because his top-secret work on the Enigma machine and codebreakers at Bletchley Park during World War II was only declassified by the government 11 years ago in 2012. On the 10th of September 2009, 55 years after Turing's death, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown released a public apology on behalf of the UK government for the way the mathematician, codebreaker and computer scientist had been punished in the 1950s because of his homosexuality. When the film about Turing's life, The Imitation Game, was released in 2014, Julia began to realise the significance of anything connected to Alan Turing. Then, in 2018, the University of Boulder, Colorado, planned an exhibition of famous people in science. Julia offered them her Turing items for display, but the archivists were suspicious. The archival global community is responsible for preserving documents. They work closely together with constant communication networks across international boundaries. When the Boulder University team was offered a collection by somebody claiming to be Turing's relative, they contacted Sherborne School, where archive staff confirmed the items had gone missing from their archive in 1980. Julia Turing was arrested by the FBI. When Alan Turing's mother donated his reports and papers to Sherborne School, she had included a detailed inventory which was used to identify and confirm the missing documents. The possessions were seized in Colorado by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Investigations. Department of Justice Assistant United States Attorney Laura Hurd and her team were instrumental in the return of the archives with the assistance of the Metropolitan Police Inspector Alan Selden and an investigator at the U.S. Embassy in London working for the Homeland Security Investigations Agency, Dipesh Tatani, who also attended the recent ceremony in Sherborne. Headmaster Dr. Dominic Luckett said... Few people have had a greater positive impact upon the world than Alan Turing. Although denied due recognition before his life came to a tragic and premature end in 1954, the extraordinary nature of his achievements is now finally being understood and celebrated. His crucial work as a crypt analyst at Bletchley Park and his enormous contribution to the development of computing and artificial intelligence were not merely of vital practical significance at the time, but continue to underpin many of today's most important intellectual and technological advances. As a school, we are immensely proud of our association with Alan Turing and want to do all we can to preserve and promote his legacy. As part of that, we take very seriously our responsibility to look after those items in our archives, which relate to his time at Sherborne School and his subsequent life and work. I am most grateful to all those both in the US and those closer to home who have worked so hard to ensure the safe return of these precious artefacts. In a fitting conclusion, it's thanks to Alan Turing and his work on computers that it is now possible for anyone to view digital versions of archival documents online, including the Alan Turing page on the School Archives website. The Dorset Wildlife Trust's Marine Awareness Officer Julie Hatcher has recently been swimming with sharks, with blue sharks to be precise, and a fair way offshore, some 20 miles. And she found these big deep-water oceanic fish to be very beautiful, but says that a lack of regulation of the fishing industry globally is making them very vulnerable. I asked Julie if the blue shark is, in fact, very blue. Oh, it's just a remarkable blue. And that was the first thing that hit me when I saw the first one is... 
that's why it's called a blue shark because it is just so unmistakably blue you expect sharks to be kind of gray or silvery colored and it's just blue it's it's stunning what a sort of a turquoise blue um no a, a kind of purpley blue a, a, a a kind of, yeah, purpley blue, I would say. Sounds, sounds lovely. So, yeah. I mean, I assume, Julie, that that blue colour on, on the shark, because it's on the shark's back, you, you said. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's presumably to camouflage the fish from, from its enemies? Um, yes, if it has any enemies. But yes, it's, uh, it's an open water shark. It swims in, in the open ocean. It's not a coastal species. So in the, the ocean blue, it's camouflaged, yeah. Uh, but uh, of course you say, you were kind of intimating that it doesn't have any enemies, but of course um, it has us, doesn't it, it as has, an enemy? Yeah, absolutely, and we are the biggest predator on the planet. Um, I suppose it does have other predators in, in maybe larger sharks, but um, but humans are by far the biggest threat to these animals. Uh, you, you say other sharks, might that be the great white? Uh, possibly, yes, yes. Uh, which, which, of course, everybody's terrified of. We all think of them for jaws, although, yes, I mean, <laughs> I have personally, I don't know about you, Julie, but I have never yet, even after all these years, I have never yet plucked up courage to watch that film. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I saw it when it first came out and, and it did have a big impact. Um, but I've learned over the years that actually sharks aren't the, you know, they're not really as portrayed in that film. And uh, they're to be respected and admired rather than uh, feared. And and this uh, the, these uh, blue, purpley blue sharks that you, you saw, where, where did you see these then? Uh, so you can actually um, go and swim with these sharks, as, as I did, in this country, in the southwest. So they, they visit uh, the southwest of England in the summer months, sort of June to October time, and you can get a boat and go out. They're mainly offshore, so more than 10 miles offshore. Um, when I swam with them, we were 20 miles offshore from Plymouth. Um, but there are boat trips that go out from Penzance as well. Um, so there are a few down in, in Cornwall. You went out then off Plymouth um, specifically to swim with the sharks. Did you feel at all nervous before you got in the water? Yeah, a little bit. I suppose it's understandable uh, because a shark is a shark and it is a predator and we are in their element um, but actually, I realised that I had absolutely nothing to be frightened of. So it was a bit, a little bit apprehensive, I, I guess, to start with. Um, but I very quickly realised that I wasn't in any danger. You, you, you realised you, they, were, they were not interested in you at all as a potential food source? No, absolutely not. And, um, and, and they don't, they're not. You know, we aren't part of their prey. They do feed on, on fish, um, so they're not mammal eaters. Um, yeah. And, and so, Julie, um, you say that the blue shark is migratory. It's, a, it's a, an open uh, ocean fish, like, like the basking shark, which, which does come quite close to our waters, doesn't it? I've seen them off the, um, just really close to the beach down in Cornwall. A one, wonderful big fish. 
So presumably, the, the blue shark and, and like the basking shark and, and the huge whale shark, they're all great travellers. They're following the migratory route of their prey, are they? Um, I guess so, yeah. So blue sharks in particular, um, obviously the other two sharks that you mentioned are plankton feeders. So they, they feed on plankton, they don't have teeth. Um, but blue sharks eat fish. And um, so, yes, they follow their, their, their prey, um, their food, but also they, they sort of spend their time between the Caribbean, the warmer waters of the Caribbean, and they swim, um, helped by the Gulf Stream, across the Atlantic to our shores in the summer, not to our shores, but to our seas in the summer, and... Um, for food because tropical seas are pretty they're not as rich in food as our seas our temperate water uh, seas are of course ours are very very rich um, so a lot of animals oceanic animals come here for uh, feeding and then return for maybe for giving birth or or something like that to warmer waters. So obviously there's a population in the North Atlantic and it, it spends its time between the Caribbean and the UK. So it comes along uh, westwards in the Gulf Stream, but then returns further south in a, in a kind of a, a clockwise kind of uh, migration. Um, making a, a, a so it doesn't return along the same route because it would be swimming against the current so it follows a more southerly eastern flowing current to get back to the Caribbean. So I, I imagine Julia that the blue shark just like the whole shark family is currently having a, a rather tough time of it. Uh, yes, um, the biggest threat to sharks worldwide is is overfishing. Um, they get targeted by fisheries, mainly for their fins, but there are some sharks that are taken for their meat. Um, and there, there are no, they're largely, the, the fishing for them is uncontrolled, so there, are, there aren't limits set on how much you can take. Um, and the blue shark apparently is the most overfished or the, the most heavily fished, heavily targeted of, of all shark species. And, and of course, the, the, the trade for, uh, for shark fins, uh, I guess, is mostly from the Far East. And it's a particularly horrible practice, isn't it? Because they, the fishermen simply cut the fins off the shark and throw it alive back into the water where it will drown because it doesn't have any buoyancy anymore does it there's no means that's of right. moving in the water yes that's right it's it's particularly barbaric I, I guess surely not many people put up their hands to save sharks from disappearing because of this universal fear of them well that's the trouble they're one of these animals that we've been taught to to fear and and to dislike um, and, and also it's the fact that they're not, it's not visible what's happening to them. The decline isn't visible to us because they're out in the ocean. You know, we don't see the decline in numbers. So they're out of sight, out of mind, like a lot of marine species. There are things that we can all do to help them. Such um, as? We choose to. Well, a lot of sharks are taken as, as bycatch. So they're accidentally caught in, in other fisheries. 
um, especially for species there's a type of fishing called long lining where there are miles and miles of line let out with hundreds thousands of hooks on uh, to catch certain fish like swordfish um, out in the open ocean and they have a huge bycatch accidental capture of sharks seabirds um, turtles all sorts of things get caught on these hooks um, so by choosing locally caught fish that are caught by our inshore boats, the small boats, um, you know, fishing out of our small coastal communities, by selecting that fish, we know that we're not helping to, we're not helping in the decline of, of these sharks. When you're going to a restaurant or if you're abroad, if you're... Uh, deliberately not buying swordfish for example sometimes shark meat is for sale so you know by avoiding buying that and, and by selective selecting the locally sourced fish that's caught on day boats by small fishing boats you know that you're not buying anything that's been caught by long line one of the most damaging it all seems very um very, kind of very, very, very wrong and, and doubly unfortunate, given that the shark family has been around for a very long time. It's a family that came into existence before the dinosaurs even, didn't it? Yeah, so for about 450 million years, there have been sharks in our seas. And they are very different from um, almost all other fish in the sea. They have a, a skeleton made of cartilage and not bone. The method of reproduction is very different, so they produce very few young compared to bony fish such as bass or cod or salmon and, and the fish that we're more familiar with. So they produce very few young. They don't mature until they're a good age, sometimes into their teens. So they're very, very susceptible to overfishing. And yet the quotas for them, the amount of fish that are allowed to be taken, are, are very relaxed. Um, they should be very strict because they are so vulnerable to overfishing, but they're not. And and some sharks, as I understand it, Julie, um, actually hold the world record for the longest living vertebrate animals. Um, yes, you might be talking about the Greenland shark, which is a shark that lives around the Arctic in very cold waters. And they've been found to be able to live for hundreds of years so you didn't, you, you said earlier that you were not in, uh, you, you had a certain amount of trepidation when you got into the water to swim with these sharks, but then you very quickly discovered that there wasn't anything to be afraid of at all. Um, yes, I mean, blue sharks, they have learned to be very wary of boats. So they tend to be very timid and very shy. You can very easily scare them away if you splash, for example, so they're not the aggressive species that we're taught to believe. You know, that we, we think that all sharks are very aggressive and they just want to bite us. Well, these were very timid sharks. They, they were more frightened of me than, than, you know, I was of them. And um, you had to be very calm and, and stay still in the water for fear that you would scare them away. And and I imagine that you gave them a, a, a for that reason you gave them a respect a respectful distance. 
Um, yes, I mean, they're in their element and they're very sleek and, and very agile and very streamlined. So their ability to swim was much better than, than my clumsy efforts. So all you have to do is just stay there and, and they're inquisitive. So as long as you're not threatening and they can perceive that you're not a threat to them, then they will come up. Uh, and have a close look at you and that's what these sharks did with me but they didn't touch me they'd veer off and and there was no way I could approach them um, because they would be off so it's uh, very much on their terms so they come to you and if you're lucky enough you, you get a good close view of them. So altogether Julie quite an exciting experience. Absolutely, and I'd recommend it to anyone who's happy in the water. It's very, very much something we can do in our own country, in our own waters, and um, you don't have to fly halfway around the world for this wildlife experience. It's, it's just amazing. Julie Hatcher of the Dorset Wildlife Trust on swimming with the elegant and beautiful blue shark. I'm joined today by Alex Stevens, who's the Regional Policy Manager for the NFU. Alex, thank you very much for joining us on the BV Magazine podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Just tell me what the Regional Policy Manager job is all about. What do you get up to? It's a bit of a jack-of-all-trades kind of role. So I guess the main thing is that I'm a lobbyist. So on behalf of our farmer and grower members, I speak to those who have influence over policy affecting farmers. So it could be MPs out on farm on a Friday, uh, councillors, um, anyone, local enterprise partnerships, those who have influence um, over farming. Also, I've got a little team. So I've got a, a team of environment advisors, um, a communications advisor and some administrators who help to keep us on the straight and narrow and ensure that farmers' voices are heard around the region. Excellent. Well, your colleague Gemma Harvey wrote a piece for the September magazine really about the plight of dairy farmers in the UK and highlights what she called growing uncertainty amongst dairy farmers. Twas ever thus, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, farming has been characterised by this over recent years. What's changed? I think you're right. I mean, it does go through those cycles of sort of, you know, things going really well, lots of investment, and then um, and then price changes, regulation changes, and it looks a bit less rosy. It does feel, though, that for many, particularly dairy farm businesses, they're at quite a crossroads at the moment. Um, and often that's about investment in the farm business. So, you know, do I spend half a million pounds on new slurry storage, new cattle housing and new milking parlour to keep going for five, six, seven years with perhaps no succession? Um, or do I think at this point in time with, you know, changes to farm policy around, you know, direct payments and other support that we've had in the past, um, is this the time to pull the plug and do something different? Is there something particular at the moment which is forcing the issue for farmers? I mean, Gemma highlights insufficient returns, volatile markets and the scale of on-farm investment, which you just alluded to there. What's brought it to a head, do you think? I think it's one of those sort of straw that breaks the camel's back kind of scenarios where we've got uh, milk prices been been dropping um, significantly this year after a couple of actually quite good years um, for dairying. Um, so that's one factor. Um, we've got the investment one that I've talked about, and actually part of that is being driven by um, regulators um, in the farming sector basically wanting to see um, enhanced levels of compliance. So changes to rules on slurry storage, changes to 
um, regulation about water runoff, that kind of thing, um, which do require investment. TB is a factor. Um, you know, many dairy herds across the region still suffering with TB, while the numbers have gone down quite significantly for those persistent herd outbreaks. Often it's a case of as soon as the herd goes clear, they're going to market and, and that's it. I'm fed up with it. Um, so there's, there's certainly quite a lot of that. Um, lack of succession is, is a big deal as well. You know, if, if you don't have anybody coming in behind you to take over the business and you haven't thought of a sort of an innovative structure where you might share farm or contract farm, um, again, why would you make the investment when you're approaching retirement? Or in many cases, if we're talking about reality on farm, you're probably already over the retirement age and just carrying on anyway. So that's a factor. Um, basic payment scheme. I don't know if, if your audience are completely fluent in that, but that's basically... Um, our sort of legacy scheme as we've come out of the European Union. Um, that was the area-based payment that farmers used to get. That's being phased out in favour of environmental payments for stewardship, you know, herbal grassland lays, looking after hedges, all sorts of great stuff. And many farmers are now thinking, well, actually, if that system is encouraging me to produce less food and to do more for the environment, um, while also basically having less of a workload, perhaps that's the route I'll take. Um, whereas other farmers that are able to are trying to do the two hand in hand. So all these things together, um, making a real a real impact, I think, and, and sort of pressing home that decision making. Putting it in context, you quote a survey, I assume a fairly recent survey, which says that 9% of 600 dairy farmers surveyed intend to stop milk production by 2025. That's up from a figure of 7% last year. And a further 23% said they're unsure whether they would continue producing milk beyond 2025. So taking that in total, about a third of dairy farmers are seriously suggesting that they might give up milk production within the next two years. Quite concerning figure. Is that representative nationwide, would you say? It is. So actually, by chance, the majority or the biggest um, region in terms of respondents to that survey was the southwest. I guess you'd expect that with more dairy farms. Um, and that picture was played out everywhere. I think in this region, in the southwest and in areas like sort of Dorset, Wiltshire, Somerset Borders and Devon, we're quite fortunate in that we have a lot of milk processors. So you think of all the cheese companies, We've got Arla, we've got Muller, we've got those options so that if you're deeply unhappy with your milk processor, there's usually an option to move to another one. Whereas other parts of the country often, you know, if you're if you're a dairy farmer in the southeast, for example, if your processor decides to stop taking your milk or the, or the relationship um, crumbles, you don't really have another option of what you're going to do unless you process it yourself. Um, so the, the, there has been a bit of protection for farmers in this region because of that. But I think because dairy products and milk is a globally traded commodity now, very often if one part of the chain, so if liquid milk starts seeing a reduction in price, that quickly has an impact on cheese makers, yogurt makers, everybody else. Um, and so actually while you can move around to look for a better term of contract, often prices are quite similar. So while we have had that protection in the past, now I think... Um, there's less of that. Um, and I would say the survey seems, from the anecdotal stuff I pick up on the ground, pretty representative of what I hear around around your patch, certainly. OK, let's just look at one particular element of that, which is the, the supermarket side of it. There's been 
a lot of talk over recent times that supermarkets pay rock bottom prices for milk such that farmers are almost making a loss on everything that they sell to the supermarkets. Is that still the case? And given all the publicity it's had, why is that still the case? The situation is a bit better than it used to be. Um, I think there are fewer supermarkets selling milk as a sort of complete loss leader that, that we just you know cut the price to try and get people into the shops. Um, so there is less of that, but um, it is certainly liquid milk is a product that's sold quite cheaply. It's a product that has a very limited shelf life. So your options of what you can do with it if you're a milk producer are pretty limited. So you tend to fall into that category of being a price taker rather than a price maker. And if the supermarkets are paying very little, you don't really have much choice other than to accept it. So the power is still there with the supermarkets, certainly. But I think the actual issue isn't as acute as it used to be. Um, actually, probably part of the challenge is making sure we get enough value out of the product through the whole supply chain. So it's the distribution, the processing, you know, the storage, and, as well as the supermarket. Um, I don't think supermarkets are entirely the villains. And I don't think any particular processor is setting out to really screw the farmer down and and sort of damage their supply base because they want to make sure that it's there. But it is fair to say that some milk processors are more ruthless than others in the way that they treat farmers. And so DEFRA are planning to introduce um, some legislation off the back of lobbying from NFU, from other dairying organisations, which protects farmers a bit more. So this is about the terms of trade with your processor. So in the past, and just to give you an idea of some of the horror stories that happened in the past, some farmers have had retrospective price cuts where their processor has gone back a number of months and said, you know, that milk we took from you three months ago, actually, we're going to pay three pence a litre less for it than we said we would. And that's going to extend for the next six months too. We've had that quite a few times. We've had farmers um, losing their contracts um, with, with almost no notice because a processor has lost a buyer. Um, and, they, and they've been put under pressure. Whereas if a farmer wants to leave the contract themselves, they usually have to give 12 months notice and can only do that on certain months of the year. So you might have to wait until March, for example, to give that 12 months notice. Um, we've also seen uh, farmers not getting a transparent explanation of why the price is where it is. So some processors have what they call a basket price. So they might track things like the cost of production, input costs, um, other household items, whereas others, it would appear that they just kind of put their finger in the air and say, well, this is about what the market is doing, so this is what we'll pay. Um, so there are all sorts of changes that are proposed um, that put more power with the farmer, but I think most importantly, make the contract more transparent so farmers understand what they're signing up to and importantly, how they can leave if they want to. Okay, I, I think that's echoed by your dairy board chairman, Michael Oakes, who mentioned that, well, inflation plus below cost of production prices threaten resilience of British farming. And he said there was a crisis of confidence in the market. How can we improve things? What needs to be done? What are you campaigning for right now? With longer term pricing, we can at least be sure that if, if you know, for example, that you will always be paid at least 24 pence per litre for your milk, and it might go above that if the market allows it, it'll never be below, then you can go to the bank and say look this building that I need to invest in this new cubicle housing whatever it is I know that I'll always get a return if I'm getting more than 24 pence a litre so therefore I can afford to repay your loan um, and I'm investable basically 
um, then you've got that confidence to go out and make the investment and do it. If you know that while you might be getting 30 pence a litre now, in a few months' time, you could be getting 20 pence, you're going to take the sort of conservative with a small C decision and say, well, I'll just kind of tick along as I am and, and perhaps I'll put off that investment until I really feel confident in the market. I think the other element um, as well is, uh, you know, waiting for um, international trade and all sorts of other elements that affect price to be dialed down. So we know we've got trade deals being negotiated. We know we've just signed up to some with other milk producing and other farming nations. Um, farmers want to be reassured that the product they're producing will find a market. And in the cheese sector, for example, we export around sort of 30% of the cheddar that we're producing, but actually by value, it's even higher than that because we tend to export the real sort of artisan West Country farmhouse cheddar. If you suddenly find that you're faced with tariffs to do that, um, then that's pretty damaging. Equally, if we suddenly find that we're signing up to import cheese that's produced perhaps to a different standard to ours um, with lower cost base, um, then we can't compete on that. So it's just that reassurance that you need it's the whole climate around you, really, making sure that it's conducive to doing dairy business. And I guess that's not so dissimilar from a lot of other businesses who just need certainty in being able to plan forward and make sure I that think, they I know what's going right. to happen. But I'd say in addition to that, dairy farming, you're dealing with animals, so it's a long game. You know, the, the calves that are born on your farm won't be giving um, any milk for sort of three years or so. Um, so there's that investment of, of keeping them in the system. And it's the sort of thing that you can't turn it off. You know, if you've got a factory and suddenly your cost of production are out of whack, well, if you wanted to, you could mothball the site. You could, you know, sell sell off assets or whatever. Um, if you've got a farm producing milk, you're still getting a thousand litres of milk every day on the farm and it's got to go somewhere. Yeah, and you've still got to feed the cattle. In terms of the the global demand for British dairy products, that's actually going up. It Absolutely. It's interesting because we feel like we import quite a lot and we are still you know, one of the biggest importers of cheese as well and dairy products, um, but it is that higher value stuff that we're exporting. And actually what that does, which is quite handy, is it keeps our domestic market a little more honest if they know that they've got competition um, from overseas. Taking a pessimistic view, what would happen then if some of those 32%, not the whole lot, obviously, but, you know, a proportion of those farmers decide, well, actually, I've had enough of this. Let's move on to something that doesn't need me to get up at four o'clock every morning. Where's that gap going to be filled from? So I think a, a chunk of the gap probably would be filled by farmers who feel that they could invest a bit more. Their cost of production might be lower. They've got the succession. They've got... Um, you know, perhaps they're owner occupiers rather than tenants and, it's, and life's a bit more secure. Um, so there would be a bit of that um, sort of filling the gap. I think also um, we would find that those farmers that go out of production, their land may well be used by other farmers too to produce um, you know, food for the cattle domestically. So that could increase the output of the, of the cows that are still in dairying in this country. Um, but I think the reality is that with demand as it is, and with the export market as it is, we would lose some of that export. We would lose the access to products that we've been used to enjoying. And um, you know, and there would be a gap there. It wouldn't be a disaster. There would be those that pick up some of the slack, um, but it would have a big impact. I think also, crucially, people want to buy from family farms, you know, particularly in this region, and we see it all around us. And actually, you know, if that was to diminish and the average size of the herds continues to get bigger, and you know the appearance of the farm is not quite what people are expecting. It all looks a little bit more 
um, you know, it, it's larger scale, it's more housing, that kind of thing, then some people wouldn't be comfortable with that. But ultimately, I think, I mean, there's room for every type of system and there's good practice in every type of system. But it's quite nice, particularly in a region like this, which is so historically dairy focused, to have that mix of smaller and larger and for there to be a viable business for small family farms as well as the larger ones. Final question, Alex, please. In a nutshell, how confident are you about the future of British dairy farming? (laughs) In a nutshell, I think I'm very confident and very optimistic that we will always have a thriving dairy industry that actually leads the world in terms of animal welfare, the quality of the product, and the methods of production used. Um, But I, I do think, and the evidence tells us that that sector in terms of the number of businesses is shrinking. And we can look at market reports and see how many dispersal dairy sales are being booked into livestock markets. Um, And we can see that, yeah, the numbers are shrinking, but actually overall as an industry, we've got a flipping brilliant product produced by fantastic people. So we should feel really rosy and optimistic about that. Quite right, let's end on a high note. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's all Terry and I have for you in this second episode of the September BV podcast. Do join us again in October. Until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.